0: Exodus chapter 23. We've come to the end of this chapter in our journey through the book of Exodus. Exodus 23 and verse 20. A few years ago, I was privileged to represent Eden Baptist Church on a visit to the Shambu Day family, our missionaries in India. Wayne Bazanson and I left Minneapolis. Put the picture in your mind on a dark, wintry... January evening when we eventually landed in Cochin where the days live we exited the plane directly onto the tarmac squinting into the blazing sun of a 90-degree day it was quite a transformation and the sights and the sounds and the smells that hit us in those initial moments were sufficient for us to realize that we had landed in a very different world it was a Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore moment. But as we entered that terminal, there was Shambu's smiling face to greet us. And from that moment forward, Shambu served as our protector and guide, navigating for us every twist and turn encountered in that radically different culture. Shambu provided direction and safe passage to every destination. And in India, that's something that's very important. Time after time, he steered us through a complicated maze of hidden dangers and social embarrassments. On one occasion, I remember Molly running across a room in front of our guests and taking a glass right out of my hand. Uh, apparently, I would have died if I'd have drank the drink. I don't know what was wrong, but it just it wasn't kosher. She saved us. On another occasion, Shambu spared me from ignorantly causing great embarrassment in the church by something that I had planned to do very ignorantly and innocently with one of the ladies in the church. The way I intended to speak with her, something completely out of our culture, something we do every Sunday a hundred times. But there it would have been scandalous. I didn't know that. I was glad he saved me. He represented us ably before the Communist Party officials who wanted a registration of our presence there in their city and how that was supposed to work. I was very glad he was with us talking to these people. We were, from start to finish, unashamedly dependent upon Shambu as our guide and protector in India. And as you can imagine, we were deeply grateful for his efforts. It never crossed our minds that we would be better off without him. It never crossed our minds to be resentful of him or to ignore any of his advice or direction. In that complicated, often dangerous, and completely foreign culture, Shambu Day was my lifeline, and I deeply appreciated that. Now with that picture in mind, I'd like us to move it higher. Consider, Christian, those of you who have come to place your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and whose presence is with you through faith, think of this. God always goes before you to guide and protect you in this troubled world. This is the nature of His relationship with His people. He is our guide and our protector. And we know this intellectually. But this is His nature that He demonstrates toward His people, and it is a conviction to which the Word of God progressively leads us in the pages of Scripture. And I'd like to suggest this morning that it is a precious truth. He is our guide and our protector through all of life's trials and situations. We witness... An early revelation of this truth here in Exodus chapter 23. Instructions to Israel have been forthcoming as God prepares her to leave Mount Sinai and to begin her journey toward the promised land. We have a map just to remind ourselves of the direction of the journey here. And if you can find this red point, that the Israelites have left Egypt and their area here in Goshen. And they have made their way. We don't know where, but somewhere in this region, across the Red Sea, probably extending further in that day than in ours. But crossing the Red Sea as God opens that way, and then journeying down southward to Mount Sinai. Now, there's much that has taken place in this journey. Of course, the great Exodus from Egypt, which is is so dramatic to us, but also along the way here, the provision of food and the provision of water. There is the battle with Amalek, and God is continually guiding and directing Israel. We remember the glory cloud that showed up and protected Israel from the Egyptian army and now has led her step by step all the way to Mount Sinai. In the last few weeks, we've considered God's revelation to Israel here on Mount Sinai as He comes to this mountaintop and delivers His word and His law. Now as that law is delivered, and there's more to come, more that will be said in the book of Exodus and following, but as that law is delivered, Israel is preparing now to do what? They're not preparing to go back to Egypt, but they are preparing for to the fulfillment of the promise to journey northward and eventually to cross here into the promised land. So as, as God prepares the Israelites for this great event in the future, he looks to them, looks them in the eye, as it were, and says, I am your guide and I am your protector. We've got a job to do from this point. Let's get our bearings on this whole situation. If you will, keep your finger here and go back to Genesis 13 and verse 14. Genesis 13 and verse 14. Now, these promises to the patriarchs have been Repeat it. We've seen the connection. But now it really becomes explicit as God prepares the Israelites to go to the promised land from Mount Sinai. They'll make their journey there, and it will take a long time. Much longer than is anticipated at this point. But let's go back and remember the moorings of this whole concept of going to the promised land. In Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He's in the promised land. He's in Canaan, Palestine. And God says, look around. This is your land. This land will be given to your people. Chapter 15 and verse 13. Chapter 15 and verse 13. God Speaking, in fact, uh, appearing to Abram in a vision. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is, the sinful depravity of the people living in the land of Canaan is not going to reverse. It's going to continue to degenerate until these people are fit only for extermination. But it's going to take four centuries. We're not there yet at this point. But these Israelites will come back. Now that God then, back to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 23, now that God has established His law with Israel on Mount Sinai, the emphasis turns to the next stage. Going to this promised land that God has given to the Israelites by His word of promise. In this Book of the Covenant, as it is called, starting with chapter 20 and verse 22 and ending here, uh, we have a fitting epilogue to this particular section of God's law, pointing forward to the promised land and also emphasizing here the first two commandments, particularly to worship God alone. We look at this summary, and we find first of all, beginning at verse 20 in chapter 23, a promise of divine guidance and protection. This is a tremendous promise to the Israelites, and we should rejoice as we consider God's grace to them. He says in verse 20, "...Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared." Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Let's park there for a moment. Verse 20, God will send an angel in front of Israel to protect and to direct her. This angel will lead Israel to the promised land and will protect her from enemies who will assuredly resist Israel. Already have and will continue to do so. In verse 21, we find that the angel's mission is personal. It is relational. Therefore, Israel is to do what? Verse 21, to obey his voice, not to rebel against him. This angel is to be revered. His word obeyed and his authority honored Israel is warned that this angel has authority to pardon sin, but will not do so. He will not pardon your transgression. Sinners will be held accountable for rebelling against this angel. On the other hand, verse 22, obedience to this angel results in the activation of God's resistance against Israel's enemies. He's on your side. He's leading you in. He's doing my work. By the way, remember, an angel, the idea is messenger. One sent from God with a particular mission. Now we've got to ask here, I think anyone would ask, in the original context, in our context, who is this angel? Some have suggested that this angel is the glory cloud that has been leading the Israelites. The simple problem, I think, with that is that an angel is a created being and a cloud is an inanimate object. A cloud may shroud an angel, but a cloud is not an angel. I will send my angel before you. Some have said it's Moses. Moses is the messenger. We think of angel always in terms of some spiritual being. Sometimes angels are not spiritual beings, it's just when the term is emphasized as messenger. This could be Moses. What's the problem? Moses never led the Israelites into the promised land. Verse 23 indicates that this angel will do just that and will be involved in the extermination, in the displacement of those who are dwelling in the land as they receive God's punishment. Now, some would say, well, then maybe it's Joshua. And there's some interest in that. Yahweh saves Joshua. Perhaps it is he who is the angel. But I wonder, verse 21, about this power to forgive sin or not. Is that very fitting to a man such as Joshua? Only God forgives sin, and his word word is equated with God's word. Joshua certainly did speak for God, but did he speak for God in this way, that their word is equated? Some have argued that it's just a poetic way of speaking of God's activity. Forget the angel idea, It's it's a figure of speech just saying that God will lead you but again, then I ask the question, well, what about this phrase, I send an angel before you, pay careful attention to him. It doesn't sound like very normal speech when you're just speaking figuratively about your action. The moving back and forth between I and him. If you're going to speak figuratively, leave it all with him. But this moving back and forth between I and him brings to our thoughts this angel is unique. Who is this angel? Well, I think as we take on an inductive analysis of it, we can see that this angel is distinct from God, right? I send my angel before you. Pay careful attention to him. God is talking to the Israelites and saying, this angel over there. There's a distinction between the angel and God. It would be easier to accept that this is a poetic reference to God's activity if God did not keep mixing indirect personal references. He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Obey his voice and do all that I say. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, I think this is the clincher. We won't need necessarily to turn there, but in the first verses of Exodus chapter 33, God proposes to send his angel to lead Israel into the promised land, but says, I'm not going with you. So if the angel will go ahead of the Israelites, but God will not, there is clearly a distinction between these two beings. The angel and God are not the same entirely. They're distinct. Secondly, we see that this angel is equated with God. Verse 21, he pardons sin, and that is the prerogative of God. Mark chapter 2 and verse 7, as Jesus said it, Who can pardon sin but God alone? And we have this phrase obey his voice and do all that I say. There, the two seem to be combined into one. To obey the voice of this angel is to do what God says. The angel never speaks in the book of Exodus. Isn't that interesting? Listen to the voice of this angel. There's not one word ever mentioned of his speech in the book of Exodus. Yet what he says, God says. My name, in fact, is in him. Now when we come to the the Hebrew idea of name, we're talking there, of course, not just designation, but we're talking their character and attributes and essence. My name is in him. This angel expresses the very essence of God. So we have one who is equated with God, yet distinct from God. And I think as we put the Bible together and seek out the truth of His Word, this can only be one person. This can only be one entity, and that is the pre-incarnate Christ. And there are those who have argued argued to that end and believe that this is the case. I think if we're honest with the text, there's many who have an agenda not to say that. I'm not saying that everyone who takes a different view is somehow seeking to undermine the deity of Christ. But I think it is fair with the text as we look at these ideas that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The Yahweh saves one who leads the children of Israel in the wilderness. We find this idea very fitting to passages such as Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Jesus is, that text says, the exact imprint of the nature of God or in John chapter 1 the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and that word was with god and that word was god the word distinctive from god yet the word equated with god this is an angel who is god yet distinct from him we have here i think the seeds of the triune being of god here in this buried in this text but as we think of Jesus leading the Israelites in this unique sense. We have to ask the question, I think, in verse 21 further, why no pardon? Go to chapter 34, if you will, Exodus 34 and verse 6. Exodus 34 and verse 6. Stealing from what we will, Lord willing, get to in the future, we find here this great event in which Moses meets with God 34.6 Does he pardon or does he not pardon? Perhaps in Exodus chapter 23, we're to understand this, he will not pardon, as a hyperbole. That is, God does not cover every eventuality, but stresses the seriousness of the situation. He will not pardon sin. A parent may say to child, this is the rule, and there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, is that a promise that the child will never be forgiven if there's disobedience? Not necessarily, but that's not what mom or dad wants to talk about right now. Right now, the issue is there's no leniency. There's no room for escape. And that seems, perhaps, to be the idea here. Another alternative would be that the angel will not, will not unjustly pardon. He will not sweep sin under the carpet. But this issue lies their intention in the Old Testament. We have this God who pardons and this God who doesn't pardon. How do we read this? How do we understand that this God who is merciful, and yet this God who demands justice for every sin? It's an answer that takes a while to develop in the text of Scripture. And it points us to this very same angel. So we have this promise to Israel of divine guidance and protection And this theme is then feathered into what follows, but this section, I think, as we follow from verse 23 on, highlights the moral call to devoted worship. So God will protect and guide, and Israel is to respond by being devoted to God alone. Verse 23, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, And I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. So the angel of Jehovah will lead Israel in victorious battle against the Canaanites. And Israel simply then needs to follow his lead. And when she enters the victory, the angel accomplishes in her behalf Israel is to prove her loyalty to God by resisting all temptation to worship the gods of the Canaanites. Israel is to zealously break their pillars in pieces. That doesn't mean that go pick out a, a building and knock down the pillars that are holding up the porch. These pillars are rock formations that have been etched and carved in, in, with the uh, notion of worshiping the gods of Canaan. They would often be found on hills, places of worship, Canaanite worship, which was debauched and corrupt and wicked in ways beyond uh, appropriate discussion in this context. You're to go to those pillars that they spent time on and spent time around in all kinds of depravity, and you're to knock them to the ground. There's to be no temptation left standing You will serve God alone. No accommodation. Verse 25, You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Certainly, again, somewhat hyperbole. That is in general terms. Not to say that no woman would ever miscarry in the rest of the future of Israel. On the other hand, the situation never developed. Israel did fall in disobedience to this very word of God. But the idea here is of fertility. Do you see that in verses 25 and 26? Why is that? Think of the Canaanite context. Fertility is a serious part, a very significant core to the Canaanite worship. The depravity that took place around these pillars as they worshipped these gods was very sexual in nature often. And there was child sacrifice, which was really just another aspect of the very same orientation. The gods give us life. The gods produce the grain and the grapes and the figs, and the olives, and all the wonders of this land. It's the great fertility gods, and we will worship them. And because they are fertility gods, they love sexuality and all of its depravity, giving the Canaanites an excuse to do whatever their hearts desired and to feel conscience-free about it. But what do the Israelites know about raising crops? Well making bricks. They're really good on that one. And if it's leading sheep, they can tell you a few things about that. Growing grain. Uh, we've never done that before. Caring for olive groves and fig trees and grapevines. That takes some knowledge. And the first thing the Canaanites will tell you is We don't start in the vineyard. We go up to the hill and we bow to the fertility gods. And as Israel comes up to those fertility rites and gets involved, they say, man, there's an attraction here. If this can make my vineyard grow, that's one thing, but it also gets my crank turning. And all kinds of depravity and temptation was everywhere. I want you to go into that land, and in devotion to me, I want you to destroy every pillar. I alone am God, and I will allow your women to bear children, and I will allow your food to grow, and I will bring rain, and I will purify your waters so that you can drink and live. I am your God, and I will give you all goodness. Don't bow at the throne of the pagans. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. My terror will go before you. Remember Rahab, Joshua 2, 9-11? through 11? We are petrified to know that the Israelites have arrived. Remember the song of Moses, Exodus 15, where it speaks of the people melting away. This is God's presence going before the Israelites and spreading this terror among these who have rebelled for so long against Him as He seeks to drive them out in just punishment. In verse 28, there's this reference to hornets. This is, I think, likely a figure of speech now, it's no problem if God raised up hornets to drive people out. That may well have taken place, but probably a figure of speech. I understand on the, by some authors that uh, this is true in the Arab world to this day, that speaking of hornets driving one out is a figure, a picture of panic and terror. It's not too hard to paint the picture, is it? You've got a whole bunch of hornets coming at you. The one thing you do is run, and you're scared. Uh, As to what this might mean. That's perhaps the idea that God will go before and drive them out as with hornets. That he will send panic. If it's literal, that's fine. It's the same idea. But they will run away from God. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Interesting point, isn't it? God's thought this all through. If everybody just leaves, the Israelites do not have enough people to populate the land and the wild animals would take over sections of the promised land. and would cause all kinds of trouble. So God orchestrates precisely in His providence how Israel will carry on this military endeavor. Progressing. It will progress at a rate that will permit her to drive out the Canaanites bit by bit. Verse 31, And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, that is up to the north of Israel. The Euphrates bends over the north of Israel and your borders will extend there. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So this is God's promise and Israel's commission all at once. These borders were probably never fully realized, even during the reign of Solomon and David, there's some conjecture as to exactly where the northern border particularly should be drawn, but probably never realized, it's my own opinion, that they will be in fulfillment of this promise. Others say that it is long past, that Israel just never realized that promise because of her failure. I don't think there's a lot at stake there, but God... As God begins to open up the land for her, Israel is to remember that this is the land that God has given her. And he's marked out the borders. And she is to remember something else. Verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Never forget this. As you go in, you go in as a distinctive people and you are not sucked into their worship. There's to be no negotiating for peace. As she conquers the Canaanites, God intends Genesis fifteen thirteen to judge them. And because He is zealous for Israel's purity and devotion, He calls her to judge them as well. The reason for this approach is spelled out further in the next verse, verse 33. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against Me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. We hear the word of our loving Father here, don't we? Every command that He gives, every line that He draws is always for our good. It's not always that way with human parents, is it? They don't always get it right. But when God draws a line, it is for the love of your soul that He draws that line. He loves you, and thus He guides and directs you, wanting your joy and your fulfillment in Him. There will be no other gods. I'm not coming with you into Canaan to join them. I'm coming with you to judge them. There will be no worship, but the worship of God alone. With uncompromising devotion, they should respond to this guidance. Now, when we think of guidance and protection in the human realm, We appreciate someone who provides that for us in this troubled world. When we have difficulty negotiating something, it's always nice to lean on someone that you know loves you and can be trusted to get you through it. How much more should we appreciate that this is how God relates to His people today? He's the same God. He could write the script however He chose to write it. He could relate to us however he chooses to relate to us. I say that in one sense of the term. On the other sense, this is his nature to love. And so he will, in his very essence, always guide and protect his people. He's always out there walking before us. This is a key theme in Exodus and we will hear this theme repeated, Lord willing, in the weeks to come over and over again because it finds itself in the text. It continues to work itself out that God is with His people. This is the key in many respects to Exodus. Let's go back to chapter 3 in verse 11 and remember this. Chapter 3 and verse 11. This is not a theme that's just suddenly shown up with this angel. But chapter 3 in verse 11 Moses said to God as he meets him in the desert at the burning bush, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt?" What is God's word of comfort to Moses? He said, "But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." What's the key? "I will be with you." My presence, Moses, is going to go with you. Moses is going back as a shepherd into the courtroom of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. And God doesn't show up in a cloud on that day. Moses has to go courageously into Pharaoh's court and stand before him. But God says, Moses, here's the key. It's not who you are. It's that I'm with you. Chapter 14 of Exodus. Chapter 14 and verse 13. Now we have a Moses who's emboldened as God has led him and as he has seen the mighty hand of God. And Moses said to the people, 14, 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you should never see again. Remember the situation. The Egyptian army is coming at them and they're pinned against the ocean with no military strength at all. And Moses says, God will show up. He'll be here. He will protect us. He will guide us. The Lord will fight for you, says Moses. Now Israel, again looking into the future in our study, chapters 32 and 33 run into a major problem. Through disobedience to God, God threatens To do what? To not go with them. He threatens not to lead Israel into Canaan, and Moses intercedes for his people, pleading that God would take his life before he would have to lead them without the presence of God. Now, at that moment, imagine Moses' perspective and the fear in his heart. He is passionate About making sure that God will go with His people. God is everywhere present at all times. Moses isn't denying that. But there's a sense of the special leading and provision and protection of God. And Moses is desperate to have it. Take my life. Remove me from all of this before you don't go with us. Do we have that kind of passion for the presence of God in our lives? I think in our day and in our setting with its peace and its prosperity, it's easy for us to just think, I don't really need God right now. I'll call upon Him when I do. But I don't need Him now. We need to be as desperate for the presence of God as Moses was. And in Israel, God is working with concrete manifestations of His presence. There's the manna and the water from the rock. But also the glory cloud and the voice from Mount Sinai and later the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence will meet. And there's now this angel of God. God continues to visit His people saying, I am here, I am here, I am here. You see me in the cloud. You see my presence above the Ark. You see that I have sent an angel before you. I'm with you. And the tendency for us on this side of matters is to say, Oh, we don't see that. It'd be wonderful to have a cloud hover over your driveway every morning as you leave or over your kitchen as you work there and say, Here's where you're going today, here's what you're going to do. It'd be wonderful for God to say that I've sent an angel before you, but we don't see that. Can you hear me? Can we take this to heart? He's just as much here now as He was then. He is in our lives as His people, guiding and protecting us. His presence walks before us in whatever we go through as much now as then. He does not need to appear in a cloud. He does not need to send a distinct angel He does not need to bring water out of a rock for us to believe that this is the case. He needs to tell us His word and to give us His promise, and He has done so. What is our cloud? What is our ark? Who is our angel? John chapter 1. Please turn, if you will. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinction, and the Word was God, equality. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word that is eternal with God in the heavenlies becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. He dwells among us. Do you remember what Jesus said as he commissioned his disciples before his ascension, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and remember the promise. Behold, I am with you. Jesus goes before in protection and guidance in direction. He goes before us into a hostile world where the gospel of Christ is proclaimed into the teeth of satanic oppression. I am with you, he says. In Hebrews 11 and verse 1, we are told that faith is the conviction of things that are not seen. And in that same book, chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot to us, and death can do a lot to us, and yet there is this persistent theme through the pages of the New Testament that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say, Where, O death, is your sting? Troubled world with many trials and temptations in our battle against the spirit realm. We stand in this world. But we're secured behind the shield of faith. And our confidence is that Jesus is actively guiding and protecting us every step of the way. Do you remember John 10? As perhaps we struggle in our faith to see it, to acknowledge it, to know it, to want it. Do you remember John 10? Jesus says, I'm not a hireling shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He will protect and he will guide us through every attack and storm. We see the cloud and the angels, so to speak. We see the concrete presence of God in the face of Jesus. And that presence is mediated to us on this side of the cross by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Like Israel, what gets in the way in all of this is not that God's not there. What gets in the way is that we, in our selfishness and disobedience and fear of the people we're called to reach with the gospel, do not always like where God takes us. But the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, and the Spirit led Jesus to the cross. Because there's a great story that's being written. A great victory that is being won over sin and death. It has been won by Jesus Christ, but it is being won in the trenches of daily life in a fallen world. And in that fallen world, God never forsakes His people. The shepherd always leads and guides. He is always there. In this environment of spiritual warfare, with the loss of this world, with the dangers that surround us, we must remember Jesus' word, I will be there. You know, as we were protected by the days in India, all we were asked to do was to trust His care. That did not mean that there was no danger What it meant was that there was security in danger. There was a confidence. Or I think of the illustration of a scuba diver who puts on the oxygen tank and the hose into his mouth. That is his lifeline. And so it is with the Spirit of God dwelling within us, mediating to us the presence of Jesus Christ, convicting of sin and guiding and leading us to do what God desires for us to do. There is a lifeline there. His presence is with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, says Jesus. And so whether it's entrance into Canaan, or let me back up and say entrance into Pharaoh's court, or entrance into Canaan against those who are prepared in city-states to defend, or if it is an assault against the kingdom of Satan today. The end of the story is God's presence with us. Where does Genesis start? God walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was there. He was with His people. And where does it end? One more verse, passage if you'll turn to Revelation 21. This is where it ends. Revelation 21 and verse 1. I'm sure we'll refer again to this passage in the weeks to come as God gives us grace. Revelation 21 and verse 1. As their God, this is where it all ends. This is where it started and this is where it ends. The presence of God with us and the down payment of that presence, Christian, is in your heart now. In the presence of the Spirit of God who mediates His presence to us. He is our cloud. He is our ark. He is our angel that will lead and will guide us until we come to this final day when God, again, dwells in this unique and tangible and concrete sense among His people, and there will be no sea, which I think in their terminology and thinking means there will be no more fear. There will be no more destructive force. Death itself will be killed, and we will live forever in the presence of God. I know, I've been praying this morning and saying to God, I know I can't deliver this sermon. I can't make it stick like it should. But if the Spirit of God is working within your heart to teach in a way that only He can teach, Can you hear of the guidance and the protection and the mercy of God to take us through all of life's sorrows and trials and difficulties and challenges and then to go out of here and worship at the throne of another God? I believe in part why God promises his presence with us is that we would know that he alone is God and that our heart would worship and find its joy in him alone. How wicked for us to idolize self and pleasure and family and popularity and friends and possessions and ease of circumstances and the philosophies of the gods of this world and to bow down before those rocks and to worship alongside of God, these other gods. When I hear the promise of God's word that his spirit dwells within me, That my body, through grace, has become the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. When I hear His promise that He will never leave me or forsake me, and that through all eternity the joy of my heart will be the presence of God with us. I want no other God. There is no other God. And may we turn in our hearts, and may God do a work in our souls in this moment to say, I will never love any other God. For Christ alone is Lord. And Christ alone is joy. Drink it and turn your back on every false idol. By the grace of God we will and be purified by the presence of God in our lives. Let's bow for prayer. I trust, Father, that there are some among us here today who with me will be asking the question, how could we ever worship anyone else? How could we possibly be so attracted to the sin and the temptation and be so overwhelmed by the fear of this world and Satan's ways? I pray that there's some among us, at least, who are alive and who are saying this with all of their heart and are pleading that you'd purify them and change them. God, I pray this prayer for my own soul. Transform us by your presence. God, if there's any among us here who is worshiping at another throne and has never come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray, God, that you would work in that heart and teach them of the severity of God. That He is a God who does not wipe off sin from our account. That He holds us to account, that He is our judge, but teach them also, Father, that he does wipe sin from the account of those who trust him in faith, who embrace the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as taking place in their stead, and who trust that message. I pray that you would open blind eyes to see this truth of anyone who knows you not as Savior. Father, that you would help them to see that you alone are God. And that every other god of attraction is nothing but poison. And I pray for those of us who know you, Father, that we would go from this place with blazing hearts, thankful that though this life is filled with its trials, and there is much to fear on the face of things, I pray that we, like Moses into Pharaoh's court, like the Israelites into Canaan, would walk into this world with utter confidence that Jesus is our shepherd. And that He will never leave our side. He'll never run. God, God, May this truth purify us. I plead for your people, for this church, praising you for your love for each one and asking, dear God, that by your mercy we would be purified. Work in our hearts, I pray, through Christ. Amen.